to Peter and Melissa. Okay. Well, I hope you're going to hear a lot more from Melissa than from me on this uh, call here. But welcome to DLM's Expert Access, um, a new experience for us in connecting our community uh, in this time of uh, focus on virtual experiences. Um, we all are incredible travelers as a community. We know that. And so it seemed appropriate that we try to get some insights into the kinds of things we would expect to see over the next uh, series of months as we all start to imagine what it would be like to get back into uh, planes and hotels and, and think about seeing the world again, whether that's for business or pleasure. And so um, I'm proud to be able to introduce you all to um, Melissa here, who is the founder of Indigar, which is a, a luxury boutique travel uh, company based in New York. Um, for those of you who don't know the company, I've experienced it through its very strong uh, editorial capabilities as a place to go to find information about destinations that an insider would want to know. But she also plans uh, trips both for individuals part of, that are part of their network as well as for organizations that are producing larger scale events. And so as a result, my experience is Melissa has a strong access to the kinds of properties, the kinds of airlines, the kinds of um, activities that we all would be participating in as we travel in, uh, in the, into the places that we go. And so, um, you know, we, we want to kind of know what's going on in the travel industry right now and what to expect for the next uh, three to six months, perhaps. So with that in mind, I'll um, turn this over to Melissa and uh, she'll start to share a host of things that, that we've talked about uh, over the past couple of weeks while we planned this. But very, very importantly, we want to open this up ultimately to Q&A, which you, um, I think for purposes of this uh, type of a presentation, a really easy way to do it is by accessing the Q&A feature on uh, Zoom here and just type in your questions and we'll kind of gather them and answer them both along the way, but ultimately a focus on a Q&A session at the end here. So I hope that makes sense for everyone. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Melissa to uh, get started here. Thank you, Peter, and thank you guys for zooming in. Um, I, as some background, the first two things that I should say is that in this moment where things are changing so quickly, um, I will offer some predictions um, and ask you to take all of them with a big grain of salt because you know the whole everything just changes with information so quickly. It's very, very hard to know where we're gonna be or what things are gonna look like. Um, and our intelligence you know, is, is just constantly shifting. Um, so I, I make any predictions with a lot of humility. If this crisis has taught me anything, it's that we, we don't know anything about what the future is going to be. But um, you know, for background, I was at Town & Country for um, 13 years as their travel editor, started their travel magazine, then started my own travel planning company. Um, 13 years ago. So I've been in the luxury travel space for 20 plus years. Um, and to sort of just give a big picture um, view of how travel has been impacted, it is estimated that COVID-19 is going to have seven times the impact on just the U.S. airlines that September 11th did. Um, and obviously September 11th was primarily an American um, events. So nothing has impacted the travel industry on a global scale like this before. Um, already lots of airlines have gone bankrupt. Um, others have drastically reduced their routes and their schedules. And then their knock-on effects from that are huge because 
I think currently there's 91% of the world's population is in a country that has closed its borders or limited um, arrivals. So, you know, the travel industry worldwide contributes um, almost $9 trillion to the global economy and is responsible for like 320 million jobs around the world. So it's a massive industry that is in a period of um, cataclysmic change. And, and obviously travel is gonna emerge very differently when it does come back. Um, I think the biggest factors that are gonna determine what the future of travel looks like um, are psychological, economical, practical, um, and sort of attitudinal. So I think, you know, the first one is the psychological aspect. Um, you know, I think after people have been sheltered at home for as long as they have, they're probably going to start traveling um, in, in expanding sort of in concentric circles from home. So they'll first start venturing out into their own backyard. Um, then they'll travel domestically and gradually they'll move further out. Um, but I also think that people of different stages and ages are going to react very differently. It's very pop it possible that younger people um, who believe they're at low risk um, or people who have recovered and believe they have some immunity, even if it's for a short period of time, they may be the first people who are going to jump on discounted offers. And discounted offers will be sort of the very first sign of travel coming back, I think. Um, but it's also possible that anyone who is over a certain age or has underlying health risks is going to be very tentative about traveling again um, and, and possibly for quite a while. Um, so that's sort of the psychological things. Then, then there's the practical aspects. Um, and, and the first one of those is what the policies of our country and other countries are. When are people going to allow foreigners in? There's rumors that, um, you know, certain European countries are going to open up, but they're not going to let Americans in, or they're not going to let people from, uh, and already Japan has a list of the countries that you cannot visit from. They're already um, countries like Chile that are talking about issuing a medical passport. And this is something that is controversial. Um, who came out this week saying that they don't believe in that concept. But, but there is definitely a group of um, countries that are considering having credentials that prove that you're healthy or that you have the um, COVID-19 or um, you know, certain things like that. There's already in Europe, um, when you get on planes, they're doing temperature checks as soon as you arrive at the airport. Um, in fact, multiple times as you go through, there's um, machines that, that are um, taking everybody's temperature. And um, I think there's going to be more and more of health and safety. I think it's quite possible that uh, we will even have, in the same way that the State Department ranks countries um, on political stability and, and terrorism risks and things like that, it's possible that the CDC will come out with rankings for countries based on their health infrastructure and their safety. Um, and I don't think people used to think about travel where they travel to based on medical facilities um, or repatriation policies. And I think that's something that's gonna change. I mean, there were people who were um, in Peru and Morocco on vacation in March and they woke up and the borders were closed. 
overnight um, and they've been stranded there for weeks um, in some cases. So people are going to think, okay, what are the places that I, you know, if things were to change really quickly or if I were to get into trouble, where do I want to be? Um, but, and, you know, obviously there's the economic factors. Um, airlines are definitely going to have to reduce capacity to ensure social distancing. I mean, there was talk um, earlier this week about removing the middle seat. Um, and, you know, there's, there's already in Europe, they're having uh, seats spacing people apart where there's basically one person for every six seats. That's going to have a big impact on the cost of travel. There's also probably going to be many fewer business travelers uh, as people have gotten used to using Zoom. So, you know, traditionally business travelers subsidized everybody in, in leisure with their expensive tickets. So, you know, I think not only is the supply of flights going to go down, but I think the costs are probably going to be discounted initially, but then um, they're going to go up significantly and that will probably last. So I think sort of the days of the cheap flights are over um, and with reduced flights, there's going to be whole regions that have benefited from plentiful flights that are going to be very hard hit. Um, you know, we've had in recent years, dozens of flights a day from all over Europe into a place like Iceland, which 15 years ago didn't have anybody visiting. And there's been tons of hotel development in a place like that. And when you have many fewer passengers, a lot of those hotels are going to go out of business. Um, I mean, in my career and in my lifetime, I never knew of hotels shutting down completely. And lots of them um, all over the world are totally shut down. And already a lot of people have said, you know, many of them are not come back. But the other thing that I think is really important is what this is going to do in terms of people's attitudes and values around um, thinking about how they travel. And obviously that's going to vary, but I don't think anyone is going to take travel for granted or be as careless as they were in their approach previously. Um, you know, I've even heard some people who were not big travelers before say, now that they've lost the right to travel, they're determined to take that bucket list trip with their family because the sort of the prohibition has made them suddenly more eager. Uh, but I also think that there are going to be people who have said, you know, look at what's happened with the reduced pollution. And, you know, we really have to be more thoughtful and not take as many cheap, quick flights. So I think sustainability is going to be something people focus on much more and, and sort of just the impact of travel. Um, because they've seen the benefits. Um, and, and I think, you know, any crisis, people have sort of value reorientation. Um, so people are probably going to think a little bit more carefully about what they do, but they're also probably going to rely on experts to try and help them figure out um, what are the right places to go, where is it safe, um, but even sort of the logistical things. I don't know if, if any of you on this call had been had travel booked, but people have sort of come to really realize the limits of travel insurance. Um, they've realized that, you know, they're, they're, they're changing a flight when the whole world is trying to change a flight or rebook is really hard if all you have is an 800 number. Um, and, and so, you know, they may take a different stand about in terms of using other people. But, um, you know, and another thing I think that's going to be really important is how companies and countries react over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, for instance, in the same way that we saw security at airports change dramatically after 9-11, 
you know, the health screenings that I alluded to before um, are going to change things. And initially that may be, you know, just sort of an additional inconvenience, but obviously there's privacy matters and things like that that people are going to think about. And um, so, you know, that's going to be something that is very different and, and you may have to get these health passports. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. And then hygiene standards, airlines are already making announcements about what they're doing to make sure that their planes are safe and clean. Um, you know, the idea that there's talk that your stewardesses are not going to be bringing you, um, you know, certain kinds of foods anymore because it's just not going to seem healthy. Um, but hotels are looking into certifications for their safety standards. There's been a lot of talk around whether Airbnb, which had become incredibly popular, is going to be much less popular for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that it's much harder to regulate and certify the um, you know, individual houses than it is a hotel. Um, so, you know, I think that that's going to be something that will help inspire confidence if people do that well. And there's definitely going to be incentives from governments to encourage first local, um, but then international travel. I mean, many countries around the world are heavily dependent on tourism to support their economies. Um, last week, foreign policy came out with an article that showed which countries are most reliant on tourism. And, you know, places like Thailand and the Philippines, I think get more than 20% of their GDP from tourism. But, you know, Italy, France, Greece, um, Mexico, you know, think of all the Caribbean islands we've all been to are incredibly dependent on tourism. And so far already, France and Greece, for instance, have made legislation so that hotels don't have to follow their refund policies. Um, and overnight, they said, you don't have to give people money back. Even if that was your refund policy, we are going to let you give credits for 18 months. Um, and in many of those countries, they're paying the salaries of the hotel workers um, now that they're closed. So I think you're gonna see really robust incentives um, to try and lure travelers back because once people start seeing other people traveling and they start seeing, wow, you know, these people are, have taken advantage of these opportunities and they've gone to Paris or Rome and, and there's nobody there. Um, you know, that's going to be a, a big impact on everybody else um, to increase sort of this, the, their confidence. And, you know, I think, as I mentioned, the thing about pollution being reduced, um, which is obviously a good thing, I think there's also a newfound appreciation amongst a lot of people for slowing down and, and being considerate about our choices. And one of the negative things that had happened um, in some ways with travel becoming so affordable and so accessible in the last 10, 15, 20 years is that we had entered sort of this era that I call kind of fast travel, which was like, um, you know, it's sort of like fast food in that it's cheap and easy, but it's not particularly nourishing. But you had people who were jumping on flights for a, a long weekend to go to Iceland to get that Instagram photo. Um, but they weren't interacting with people or learning about a community or the history or appreciating sort of the distinctiveness or taking the time to get to know a place. Um, I'm on the board of something called the Center for Responsible Travel, which is a nonprofit in DC. And um, not this past fall, but the fall before it, we held our summit on the topic of over tourism, which we defined as um, tourism that has moved beyond the limits of acceptable change in a destination. And it 
has a negative impact on the, both the people who live there, but also um, the degradation of, of the environment. And, um, you know, that, that's been a huge issue uh, for the past number of years. And, you know, you've seen it if you've gone to Venice or Barcelona, places that were completely, you know, so swarmed with tourists that locals didn't want to live in the cities anymore. Their neighborhood shops had been closed up. Um, you had a lot of people leaving the cities. Um, in, you know, places like Angkor Wat, they were literally worrying that these cultural monuments were being worn down by the thousands of tourists that were going up and down the steps. And it was a, it's been a real concern. What I'm concerned about now is the opposite, which is this development of under-tourism and the idea that you could have places that have been able to exist, whether it's in the Amazon or, um, you know, in Botswana, incredible, pristine places that have been preserved because of ecotourism or responsible tourism that has made, you know, communities viable um, because you had tourists. And if those tourists completely disappear, a lot of these kind of vulnerable communities that have been able to survive through the benefits of tourism, um, you know, could collapse and, you know, their youth could have to go into urban cities. They could lose their culture. Um, they could have to go back to having logging and mining interests come in um, because that's the only way to get money. And that would ultimately degrade the environment even worse than, um, you know, so it's a complicated issue. Um, so those are, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on for too long. I want to get to people's questions. But um, to me, those are some of the really big issues that we face um, are sort of how do we go back? And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to say, okay, we've come out of this period where travel was too cheap and easy maybe, um, and it had the negative effects of, of serious pollution and over-tourism. But if we retreat and it shrinks really quickly, um, there are equally dangerous things. And so how do we do this in a very responsible way and find the middle path where the benefits of tourism are supporting cultures and communities and environments in a positive way, but at the same time, we're mindful about the impact on pollution and, um, and, and all of the negative impacts on, on local communities. So um, I can obviously, I'm passionate about this, I could go on, but um, you probably all have questions, so why don't I, I, hear from well, I, I wanted to ask a few questions clarifying perhaps uh, to get started here. Um, sure. First, just it sounds interesting that to, just to kind of maybe paint a picture, you've made it sound like essentially air travel could become very expensive while hotels could become much cheaper um, as incentives are put in place to bring people back to certain destinations. I'm, I'm curious to maybe have you elaborate a little bit on, on that calculation and you know, how you see that maybe emerging in the short term here as we think about maybe fall travel or something like that. Is this a time to really be uh, thinking about that or is it uh, premature? I think it's a little bit premature um, <clears throat> because I'm not, I, and again, I think it's gonna differ widely based on demand. Um, so that you may have governments who incentivize even, air, you know, government owned um, or subsidized airlines who will subsidize cheap tickets originally to bring people in. Um, so it could be that it's possible that that will be cheap for a while, but over the long term, there's just no viable way for airline travel with reduced capacity um, to stay as inexpensive. I mean, 
you know, they don't believe that airline travel is going to come back to the levels of 2019, probably for four or five years at the earliest. Um, and, you know, they're, they're already, Boeing is reconfiguring um, their planes and, and canceling wide bodies. Um, so it's very possible that they're going to have to structurally figure out how an airline can make money with fewer passengers. So long term, I think that the economics are going to be a problem. In the short term, they might be cheap for a while. Um, but what we've already started to see is in China, where things have started to open up, um, different regions, depending upon the type of traveler, are massively discounted and other regions are holding much stronger. So, you know, for instance, you're going to have certain places that are going to be you know, if, if they maintain popularity, I don't think, you know, for instance, Santa Barbara or Nantucket is going to be really cheap this summer because those are places that they're going to get lots of people driving and going and wanting to spend time there. Those hotels are going to be able to maintain, um, I think, pretty good numbers, but it's more places that, um, you know, the Caribbean, we're already starting to see real deals. And one of the things that hotels are doing, which they have not done before, which is interesting, is offering what they're calling bonds. So today you buy seven nights at the Christopher and St. Bart's, for example, um, paying $200 um, a night, and it's going to be worth $400 if you use it in the next month um, or two months. And so that's something that a lot of hotels are trying for the first time. They're calling them hotel bonds. And I think that's something that you're going to see uh, definitely. So short term, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of different things tried and there definitely will be some good deals to take advantage of. One of the, one of the things I'm curious about is to maybe try to uh, personalize this as much as possible. I know you speak directly to the owners and operators of many properties and senior executives at the airlines themselves. What, what do they actually tell you about their kind of expectations or the experiences that uh, guests would expect to have when they come? Well, I think, I mean, the interesting thing is, and, and really from the beginning, everybody is in completely unknown territory. I mentioned at the very beginning that 9-11 was an American incident. I didn't think of that, but I was in Paris on March 12th, which was the day after Trump said, you know, all Americans have to come home. And I happened to be meeting with the heads of, you know, three of the top hotels in Paris that morning. And they all said, listen, after 9-11, yes, our American business dried up, but we had all of the European business still. We had the Asian business. You know, we've gone through issues before. We've never had the whole world staying home. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's completely new for all of them. Um, what we're, we're all doing is sharing information um, about what the, uh, the sentiment of our clients are, because that's, you know, I, I talked about psychological and attitudinal, that's a big part of what's going to happen. And so starting to see, and I've even seen it in the U.S., how regionally we're different. I mean, I'm not in New York City right this minute, that's where our company is based, I'm outside in Long Island, but a lot of our clients are all over the world, many of them are in other parts of the country, and we're getting people from Texas saying, hey, I want to go to St. Bart's next month. And, you know, my team who are in New York are thinking, wait, that's crazy. Are there even flights? You know, this just seems that 
New Yorkers are still definitely in a, a serious wave of anxiety and can't quite imagine getting in an airplane um, in the next couple of weeks. But I have, you know, we've got clients in California who as soon as Hawaii's open, they want to start going. So it's, it's very much a, a sentiment issue that people are trying to gauge and understand. Right. Um, why don't I, we try to filter in some questions from the uh, group here that I can see on my screen and we can you know, keep it going in that way. So um, do you, when, when you talk to your different sources, do you have timelines that you're working toward even today as you talk to your uh, travelers about when they might go back to Europe, when they might go back to different areas and really try to be, be as concrete about that as possible? Yeah, I mean, as I said to you in the very beginning, um, you know, what this has taught us is that none of us know anything. So certainly in March, we came up with um, what we believe, we have sort of, we look at this in three phases. We look at this, there's the lockdown phase when no one can travel. There's what we call the travel resumption phase, which is when um, it can come back in a limited way. Um, and then there's what we, you know, we all hope will be you know, travel coming roaring back. And that's, you know, the, the pent up demand plus, you know, a real sense of, of confidence. Um, and we've sort of, you know, initially in March, we thought, okay, the lockdown phase will be six weeks and then resumption will be starting in the beginning of June. And then, you know, it will come roaring back in December. Um, those keep shifting because lockdown keeps getting extended and different countries keep changing their policies. So, you know, we had a lot of people holding on to their reservations and still do have people holding on to reservations in Europe for this summer. But part of it, again, is dictated by the hotels and the countries. So, you know, there are certain countries, Spain um, is, is saying that they're not going to let hotels reopen, um, you know, until possibly the fall. Um, we did get word that one of our favorite hotels in the south of France is opening again on June 1st. We're still not entirely sure whether France will open to foreign visitors or whether they would require quarantining. Um, but, you know, so we're watching it every single day. And, you know, the, the optimists um, believe that people will be able to do some international travel in um, the early summer and, um, and certainly more in um, the fall. And we definitely have, you know, plenty of um, properties in, Europe that are very confident that by August, um, they will definitely be able to have lots of international travelers back. But, you know, one of the things that is key to us is just, I always say, look, I want to be optimistic, but I've also got to be practical. So we are, we've postponed trips that we were running this spring. Um, and we had paid for in full and the hotels wouldn't give us refunds. So we postponed those and rolled them over to the fall. My hope is that we will be able to do those trips in the fall. Um, but if we can't, I believe those hotels will then let us refund those forward to the next spring. And, you know, what I'm saying to people who are planning in the fall is I'm optimistic. I'd, I would love it if we can do these things, but let's learn and let's say, okay, when are we getting your deposit put down? Let's not put a deposit down until 30 days out, if we can get that instead of 90 days out. Um, because we can't, there's no such thing as cancel for any reason travel insurance anymore. That was something that was an option um, that doesn't exist. They, they canceled that. So, you know, you just have to be practical and understand that no matter what we predict, we don't know. Right. So it sounds like there's a lot of negotiation taking place with individual properties 
at least as you look out to the fall here. Absolutely. And, and some of this we're doing in sort of concerted efforts with hotel groups and with tour operation groups and saying, look, guys, we have to, as a, as a whole community, understand, and I've gone to a lot of hotels and saying, you can't ask people to pay stuff and commit to non-refundable prices in this environment. It's just it's unreasonable. And so you've got to work with us and give right. them flexibility. So we've talked a little bit about international travel. And we've talked a little bit about kind of the Santa Barbara and Nantucket drive-to destinations. What about something in the middle? Are you, when do you, where do you see that going in terms of, let's call it domestic oriented, but on an airplane type of a travel over the next six months? Well, I think for sure, as I said in the beginning, people are first going to want to venture out in their own backyard. And wherever you live, I think that that's where you're going to want to go um, originally, um, where you can drive to, where you can train to. Um, and it's not just, I think, because of the fear of, uh, of getting on a plane um, and the, sort of the comfort of knowing that you could drive back home if you needed to. I also think that we've really come to appreciate um, you know, the, our local heroes and, and our local community. And we want the fabric of our communities to come back and to exist. I mean, in New York City, uh, you know, what is New York without restaurants? And if we can't support our local restaurants um, and help them try and come back, the fabric of the city will be something that, you know, will be very different. And so I think there's a lot, of, and that's my personal um, feeling, but I think that, you know, wherever you live, people definitely want to try and support those at home um, and explore at home. And so I think, you know, domestically, it's going to be, um, you know, just kind of going further and further afield, but first really kind of staying close to home. When, when you, when you uh, talk to your airline and hotel partners, and I assume the rental car companies as well, um, what do they tell you privately about the kind of standards for kind of sanit sanitary conditions and things like that that are where, where, where are we really versus kind of this, the wipes and, you know, things like that that are kind of easy to identify? Yeah, I mean, look, I think they're, they're, they're not telling me anything that they're not going to say publicly um, because we live in such a litigious society. Everybody is very careful about what they say, uh, but everybody's learning as they go. And so, you know, certainly, you know, testing of employees is something that's going to be very standard that they're, you know, regularly... Um, testing. And I do think that the swab tests, which um, will indicate whether someone is actually, whether they have it or symptomatic or asymptomatic, whether they're shedding, um, is something that, you know, as that becomes more and more available, is going to be something that every service business where they're interact or hospitality focused business is going to have to make that something that's really standard. Um, and then I do think we're going to get to, you know, we're going to a place where shaking hands is probably over. And I was somebody who always swabbed down my own airplane seat beforehand and used all sorts of immune boosters when I travel, just because, you know, I, I worried about getting any kind of sickness um, being on airplanes all the time. But I think everybody's going to be doing that and the airlines are going to be doing it for you. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's really health hygiene, education, training, um, and testing that they're all trying to do. And, and again, I think it's, you know, everybody's learning as they go, um, but they're going to err on the side of, of caution. Hmm. Can, can you help us understand the difference in booking 
with a travel professional versus directly with properties as we think about you know the the kinds of issues that may come up over the next six months or so yeah i mean look i think um the reality is and i say this to people all the time you know um i love the our hotel partners that we work with but when you book something direct you're just one individual when you book through a travel professional all of a sudden it's like you're unionized um and so are we able to probably get you you know not only the better room but the money back before everybody else yeah because the hotel looks at us and says okay they bring me you know 900 people a year or 900 bed nights a year and this guy's you know i don't even know if he's going to come back I should probably take care of the person who's bringing me the most bed nights first. Um, and that's just a reality in terms of, you know, how they deal with wait lists, how they deal with um, room upgrades and how they deal with refunds. It's just a, you know, it's a, a business decision. <clears throat> and um, trying to think about, um, I'm just looking at questions here. Do you have a perspective on, um, you mentioned before the Caribbean, but if we took sort of the Caribbean and Mexico, and other kind of regional tra uh, travel that's you know in the in this hemisphere. Do you have any perspectives on that as you look out ahead here? Yeah, I mean, again, I think um, it's going to vary so much person to person and what their um, concerns are. Um, so you know, if somebody is fearful of catching something and being in a hospital, um, they're probably not going to you know, venture to a country like Mexico or the Caribbean where, you know, very strong, you know, good hospitals are not as easily available as they are in the U.S. I think there's a lot of people who are going to say what we know, and again, what we know about this disease is changing all the time, but I think there are a lot of people who are going to say, you know, given my health profile, my age, what I know of what I've seen of this disease, I think that, you know, I'm, I, I can take certain risks and I will feel comfortable going to these places. They're definitely going to be some of the places that have the most aggressive um, sort of discounts and incentives early on because they are so entirely dependent on tourism and a, a, you know, a confident market. You know, St. Bart's already has tests. I think they're planning on testing people as they get off the plane. Um, so does Moustique, for instance. And those are islands where they've said, look, we know that if people can't feel confident that we're dealing with this in a very proactive way, we're never going to get our tourists back. Well, that's maybe an easy way to get a test. Fly to St. Barts yes. and you actually can get tested versus around here. Exactly. All right. That's, that's higher on my list now. Um, <laughs> do you have a point of view on the cruise industry? Um... I've, I've not been a huge cruise fan. Um, just as, a, as somebody who loves to travel um, and really get to know places and meet the people who shape them and interact with, um, you know, the kinds of artisans and, and chefs that aren't um, sort of globalized but are much more local, um, cruise ships aren't really um, lined up for the most part with the kind of travel that I like to do. Um, I, in the course of my career, I've gone on a lot of cruises um, for mostly as a journalist. Um, and 
you know, I certainly think for people who are much older and have mobility issues, um, it's, they're, they're great. And there's certain parts of the world that you can't access as well unless you're on a cruise ship. So places like Antarctica or the fjords, um, you know, in the Baltic, those are places that it makes sense to me to be on a, on a, on a big ship. A lot of other places, um, it's not for me. I think it's gonna be, they're gonna be massively impacted because um, you know, people just understand that the, the, the number of people in the small space, in confined space is, um, you know, is, is an issue. And their target market for the most part was um, you know, people who had mobility issues or age issues and, and wanted that convenience. Um, and I think they're, they're going to be very reluctant to get back on cruises. Right. Um, you know, um, a couple of just looking at the questions here. Um, do, do, you, do you think there will be more restrictions in terms of actually requiring visas to enter certain countries? Uh, someone's asking a question, for example, here about even England that may require visas coming up here. Is that something you're tracking? Yeah, it's, I think it's gonna be very interesting and potentially, again, it's one of the things that does concern me because I think we've had the wonderful benefits from being in a global society and having very um, good ease of international border crossings. I think that just increases global exchange and I'm a huge fan of that. There's no question that there are countries that are going to be targeted um, and it's going to be very different depending upon where you're from and what's required. Already, as I mentioned, I mean, Japan issued a list yesterday, barring you know, another 20 countries, citizens of the Dominican Republic, for instance, are not allowed to go to Japan. Um, and, and some of those things, I think, are ultimately just going to keep people at home and keep people isolated. Um, if we manage it, and I think there will be a lot of international cooperation around figuring out what is a very easy um, health passport, you know, what does it mean? How do you get it? Um, that I would be more in favor of that if, it, if it's effective than visas for certain countries based upon, you know, their, their COVID um, right. situation. But and as I said, you know, unfortunately, there will be countries that institute things for alternative reasons in the name of this that could have negative impacts. Um, but it, it, there's no question it's not going to be easier to travel. It's going to be harder. Right. And with, with, all, with respect to a lot of these conversations we're having about this interim window here, is, is, the, is the travel industry's expectation that this is going to be uh, something that's permanent? Uh, or you're going to see this kind of all revert back once there's a vaccine that we all can rely on? Um, I, I can't speak for the whole industry. I would say that I think there are, are many among us who do not believe that it's going to snap right back to the way it was before um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, one example that I'll give you is um, you know, as I said, I happen to think it's going to become cost prohibitive for a lot of people. A lot of what's fueled the travel boom, I talked about the Instagram-worthy photo, were 20 and 30-year-olds jumping on planes and having bachelorette parties, you know, in, in Mexico. I mean, the number of international trips that young people, millennials in particular, were accustomed to because of how easily affordable it was. 
um, that's going to be a generation that's very negatively impacted by the economic issue. They're not going to have the discretionary income. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's going to be a big change, even though they, they're, I believe, very committed to experiences. I think that some of that is just going to disappear. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Traditionally, travel was something that people um, saved up for or did, you know, it was the purview of the very wealthy. I mean, the expression jet set comes from Americans in the 60s and um, being able to go skiing in Europe and go to the beaches in Europe. And that was a very small percentage of the population because until the mid 1980s, just travel in general was something that wealthy people did or you saved up and you had a big honeymoon once in your life. Um, even when I was growing up, you know, to go on a, a big family vacation once a year was something that you know, wealthier people did. And, you know, in the last 20 years, people are doing, you know, every, every long weekend, every vacation, the whole world has to get on a plane. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible that we'll go through a period where what was mass affordable travel um, is hollowed out to a large degree um, and people have to be much more considered and thoughtful. And I think one of the things that could happen as a result, we've, we've started in lockdown. Um, one of the first things we started doing was these virtual global classrooms. Um, and we had partners all over the world who we've worked with for years who were not getting travelers. And so we've done virtual tours of Versailles, behind the scenes, the palace. We've had a geisha take us into her house and you know, do a tea ceremony and explain dancing or salsa classes in Colombia. I mean, these are virtual things that, you know, I, when they introduced Google Glasses a number of years ago, I thought no one's ever going to use Google Glasses to visit the Serengeti. Well, you know, people are now doing these on Zoom calls. And I think that, that this crisis may have accelerated an adoption to some degree of how virtual travel can still be educational and it can still provide a discovery. Um, and certainly if travel becomes really unaffordable for a lot of people, it may be a way that people who love to travel supplement their exposure to other countries, um, you know, in addition to those, the trips that they do save up for. So, um, you know, I don't think any of us knows exactly what it looks like, but these are some of the things I think that could happen. Right. I have a question here about um, loyalty programs and, you know, your expectations for how people should think about their loyalty programs as you know, airline routes change or hotels take on, um, you know, different incentive programs. Do you, do you have advice around that? Yeah, I mean, my advice would be that there is going to be fallout. Um, there's no question a crisis like this winnows the field and the strong survive. And so, you know, if there is a way for you to um, consolidate your points uh, or your um, awards in the stronger players, that's going to be the safer bet. Um, you know, if you've got a small airline or a small hotel, um, you know, I would say try to use it early. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, as I mentioned, in France um, and in Greece and a number of places, you know, where people were given only credits for their hotel stays. Um, you have hotels that have given credits to people for a stay in 2020 that far exceeds the number of nights that are going to be available 
when that hotel uh -oh. is open and you can travel to it. So, you know, being early and getting in as quickly as you can for those nights or reserving something or trying to roll them ahead is one play. But as many in the industry have said, you know, some of these hotels may not be around in 18 months. Um, and so, you know, you, you want to try and figure out when you can go places. Already there's um, some real demand supply issues for um, the Christmas season because people are trying to fit in all these credited nights. Right, interesting. Um, I, you know, um, uh, a question here sort of says like, what, when you talk to hotel owners uh, and you sort of, I sort of want to tie this back to your point that hotels, some hotels may not exist in the future. Um, what, what do you tell hotel owners? Um, you know, for example, I am imagining a property that I've been wanting to visit on Menorca. It seems like a very tiny little hotel in a very remote place. What, if, what would you tell them right now about uh, what they should be thinking about looking ahead here? Look, I think it's, it's so hard because a lot of these, the survival, a lot of, of these hotels is going to depend on whether the government support them and literally how much liquidity they have. Um, you know, can they weather three to six months? And that varies country by country. Uh, the European countries are very supportive of their tourism industry, much more so than um, those in the U.S., so it's very possible that even the small properties in Spain will get subsidies and they'd be okay. Um, but I would say, you know, you want to be, you know, very wise about a backup plan because there's no question if it's a small property, you're more likely to end up, you know, having no recourse if you get there um, and either it's closed or it's overbooked. Uh, and that's certainly a, a possibility. So, Again, that's where actually working with somebody who knows the region. So if you did get into trouble, they could get you an alternative or working with a bigger player where you know, you know, Marriott isn't going to put you out on the street. They're going to figure out a, diff a different hotel for you to stay in. Right. And, and so what do you tell the hotel owners when you speak with them about what your guests are expecting? Uh, look, I, I think it's one of those things where our guests are definitely expecting you know, service levels, but they're at the same time understanding. I mean, I've been really impressed by the humanity that's come out in this. Um, we have guests who are, have gone to those small family run hotels in Europe um, for, you know, once, sometimes, other times, you know, multiple times. And they are saying to us, we, you know, as soon as it's safe, I want to get back there. I want to support these places. They gave me these incredible memories. And I know my business is part of what's going to keep them alive or not. Um, so, you know, we, we do have to vote with our, our pocketbooks here um, and, and support the people that we really want to, to make sure that they do survive. Right. Interesting. Well, we've... Um kind of perfect timing in some respects. We um, have answered all the questions that have come through and um, we have just a minute here. Maybe if you have some final thoughts to leave us with, um, you know, I personally am fascinated by this concept of, you know, the, the fast tourism and maybe that going away and really changing the experiences we have out there going forward. Um, any other thoughts that would kind of, we should be thinking about as we finish up this call and, and maybe start to thinking about traveling again? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting um, that 
in some ways I look at people's reaction to the lockdown and I, and I'll start with myself. I mean, I'm surprised in some ways, um, this is probably the longest stretch in 25 years that I have not left um, the U S or that I've been at home with my husband um, and my kids. And um, you know, in some ways I'm surprised at how, what I miss about travel is not what I would think. Um, and, and similarly, we've had um, a lot of our clients saying, you know, um, when I get out of this, I want to go to, um, you know, places that are naturally beautiful where there are no crowds. And then we've had other people who have said, I'm desperate to get back into the mix of things and be with among lots of people because I've been alone too much. Um, or people who, as I said to you, you know, want to go back and revisit those classic places that really matter to them. Mm -hmm. And others who feel really strongly about, you know, being in their own backyard. And I just think in, in, a, in a funny way, it's almost like a little Rorschach test for us. You know, what is it fundamentally about travel that we miss the most? What is it that we love the most? Um, what's, you know, mattered when we look back? I've spent a lot of time looking through old photo albums and um, in old travel pictures. And you know, what are those things that were so wonderful about those trips? And how do we you know, really take the time to look at that and decide, okay, what is it that matters most to me and how can I go back out into the world and have that kind of impact? Yeah. Um, so I hope that when we come out of this, and I think the industry is doing exactly that too, is sort of saying, okay, what have we just adapted to and has been easy money? Um, and, and what are the things that we really want to represent? And what, are the, what is the way that we can be better um, after this reset? And so I hope that we, that we all do that individually, but also as an industry and, um, and that we find the best parts of travel and we really emphasize those as we go yeah. forward. Well, that, I think that's very, very good advice. I generally say quality over quantity. Uh, and so I think that's uh, true of how people in the design industry think anyway because we're all about quality so that sounds like very good advice i also wanted so i wanted to thank you very much melissa for doing this i think this has been great and i wanted to remind everyone on the call here that we have two more of these expert calls this week uh, one is on navigating job sites as we all get back into the physical environment over the next few months and what things to look out for there and also about messaging in a crisis uh, so those are coming up, and all of these um, expert access calls that we have here are a, we're able to provide CEU credits with the AAA and ASID. Uh, so we're really trying to provide a service to our members with all of this. So thank you all for being here again, Melissa. Thank you, and um, so happy to have you here with us. Thanks, Bye, everybody. Thanks so much.